And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm delighted that you're here. When Canada finally legalized cannabis for adult use, it produced a wave of optimism on the part of the cannabis industry stakeholders here in the U.S. But the fact remains that we have a long way to go before our federal government will follow Canada's lead. Despite the ongoing prohibition at the federal level, the cannabis industry has managed to thrive in states that have passed marijuana legalization measures. As a result, there's no shortage of investors looking to put their money into cannabis and no shortage of ambitious entrepreneurs who would gladly put it to good use. The elephant in the room, of course, is federal prohibition, which makes investing in the emerging industry risky, if not more difficult or simply illegal. Recent reports circulating about Canadian investors who have put money into cannabis securities being banned from the United States have chilled the enthusiasm for investing in American companies. Couple that with the fact that major banks in the U.S. won't touch cannabis money, and it's easy to see that we've reached a regulatory impasse. That's a shame considering that for the first time in a generation, we are on the precipice of unleashing an industry that could solve so many problems, not the least of which are economic, for the U.S. if only our federal government would just step out of the way. Meanwhile, Canada's market is where the smart money is being invested, and while Canadian cannabis companies are reaping the rewards, American companies are forced to work around federal law. In recent months, a number of resourceful U.S. cannabis companies have been listed on the Canadian exchanges to capitalize on the country's legal framework for investment into the industry. Private companies looking to expand on the domestic front have had to learn to navigate through banking barriers and other legal complexities in order to remain competitive. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm looking forward to discussing this with our guest who knows a lot more about this than I do. Kevin Conroy is a former Deputy Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, now practicing law as a partner in the Boston law firm Foley Hogue, where he originally began his career in 2005. He eventually became Chief of Staff and General Counsel of the New England Council, where he advocated for priorities in healthcare, energy, and finance services before the New England Congressional Delegation and Governor. He later served as chief of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Business and Labor Bureau before becoming Deputy Attorney General and eventually returned to Foley Hogue as a partner in the firm's administrative law department with a primary focus on government investigations and regulatory matters. Kevin has considerable experience developing proactive strategies to guide clients through every aspect of the regulatory process and knows firsthand how government investigations work, particularly with highly scrutinized industries like cannabis. He represents a variety of marijuana investors and operators regarding both medical and recreational marijuana laws and local approvals needed to operate in Massachusetts and beyond. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Thank you, Snowden, for having me. I, I've listened to your podcast, and, and I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so you, you. You have a really great show and, and very interesting um, topics that you've been addressing. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You know, I was anxious to speak with you because you've been in the trenches when it comes to navigating the legal landscape ever since Massachusetts passed its adult use law. But now that Canada has legalized, you've also been active in helping clients work through some of those same regulatory challenges having to do with interstate and intercontinental investment and banking. So I'm really anxious to delve into this. But first, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing at your firm so that our audience understands your area of expertise. Um, I'm an attorney um, from Boston and and have been working in the Canada's cannabis space for for about three years now. We represent generally um, app 
applicants who are looking for state cannabis licenses in a variety of different states. We're also handling a variety of transactions, um, some involving um, now Canadian companies as they enter our market and some, and then a fair number of um, domestic transactions. Um, we've got a team here of uh, 10 attorneys who, who handle a variety of different cannabis work. We also do some trademark work, some IP work, um, and, and your everyday uh, corporate work and tax work for our clients. You know, I'm really eager to hear your take about the ways in which legalization in Canada is going to impact the U.S. market, because it's the first time in our lifetime, anyway, that we have an emerging industry that's been so restricted by federal law. And at the same time, it offers this incredible amount of opportunity for economic growth. And as I mentioned in my opening, a lot of companies are looking to Canada as a way to work around these restrictions. What are some of the pitfalls or even advantages that you're aware of? Well, um, you know, let's 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 make sure we understand the fact that Canada is now legal is, is a game changer for the United States and 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 can this cannabis industry in in the United States and and we've we've already seen it even though this is just a recent legalization we've already seen it in a few ways I I, I think for kind of most notably and we should talk more about this is is just the influx of Canadian funds funds from Canadian companies that that have are now looking to invest in the United States cannabis companies. Um, that is, we're, we're seeing a, a, a variety of different transactions that are happening now involving Canadian companies because right there, their stock market um, is, 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 is made very clear that they allow for, for listing of, of cannabis companies. And so public dollars, um, you know, public fund, public money, public um, uh, dollars are now coming to the United States because of that. And, and that, that, that has been the number one game changer we've seen in, in, in the work that we do. I think that the second thing that, that is, that makes the Canada different and, and why it's significant here is that we just have so much travel and back and forth with Canada that, that, um, that I expect what's going to happen with the legalization in Canada is we're going to see a further break breakdown of this nimbyism that we see in the United States. You know, I, I don't, we, we still see, and even our legalized states, we still see this nimbyism. And, and because there's so much travel from the United States to Canada, as our U.S. citizens go up there and they see how a legalized environment works, how they see it, how it works well, I, I think it's going to really open up people's minds here in the United States that, that, that legalization is fine. It's not, it's not the, it's not this evil thing that, that, that many folks see out there. And so th those are two examples um, that are kind of hot on my mind with the Canadian legalization. It's, it's interesting because when Colorado and Washington first legalized, it was very interesting to me to see how the sky didn't fall in and the reaction of the people who were, you know, completely against it and fought it for as long as they did. And we still have so many people fighting it here. But I also find it interesting that the Canadian companies are looking to invest in the United States cannabis, whereas I think that for some time, it was sort of the other way around, wasn't it? I mean, it was more common for U.S. investors to want to go and invest in Canadian cannabis, mainly because they knew that the legalization was on the horizon. What's been your experience there? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we, we've seen, you know, our, from our investor clients, this is for a long time now, um, looking to Canada because the opportunities were greater. The, everybody was anticipating legalization quicker and sort of the, 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 some smart money was moving to Canada. What, what has now happened and um, what we're seeing right now is um, this extraordinary amount of Canadian money that is that is coming to the United States and to 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 invest in in the cannabis industry in the United States and it is some of these larger companies who are on, larger um, cannabis companies who are on the Canadian stock exchange exchange like Afria Canopy Growth Kronos and and there are many other examples and and they are interested in the United States and investing in cannabis companies in the United States for a couple of reasons, right? First is that there are large population centers in the United States. And, and for the most part, our legalized dispensaries and legal, legalized cultivation centers are, are doing very well. And they, they recognize that. We have, we have in, in many states now, we have well-regulated markets 
where um, where where competition is good, but but the, the the industry is well run, and these Canadian companies are respecting that. And and then third, we we just got a big population here, and and so we are seeing this Canadian money come down. It, it's it's creating some very interesting regulatory issues because our regulators in the United States are having to get used to the fact that the, that we've got these Canadian companies who are investing here. But it it's it, it overall it's a good thing. We're seeing more money come into uh, to the um, to the to the American market, and that's going to be good for consumers. And how's it been with the SEC? I mean, have there been issues with the marijuana stocks? You know, obviously they're doing very well. They seem to be on an upsurge right now. But I mean, has the SEC given any hiccups to American investors on the Canadian stock exchange, or have there been any issues with like on the pink sheets or? any of the other exchanges here in the United States with cannabis stocks? Well, you, you are absolutely right that we've seen um, the American companies who are on the American exchange. Um, we, we have seen them do well in, in the penny stock world. Um, we have seen very few companies, um, however, get to that next stage. And, and part of that is, is because of concerns of, uh, of American regulators. Um, and, and what has also happened, right, is that um, our American companies, as they've seen our regulators being concerned, the, the SEC um, and 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 because of the fail of our, our continued um, issues with American banks, um, many many of our better American companies are really larger American companies are really starting to look to Canada because they see better opportunities there, better opportunities to get funding, better opportunities to expand. So not only are we seeing the Canadian money coming to the United States, but we've seen um, we've seen American companies go up and 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 specifically um, get try to get listed on the on the Canadian exchange a, a perfect example of that is um, is is Columbia care which is um, um, is, is which is it has gone up to the gone up to get finance on the on the Canadian exchange and we've also um, seen that with uh, Cureleaf which which did a, a reverse merger this these are American companies who who probably um, had in a perfect world would would love to be on the uh, American exchange exchanges and and grow on the American exchanges but recognize that the environment right now is 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 better in Canada and 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 hopefully that's a short term thing but but it, it shows that 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 we've got sophisticated companies here who recognize that there are better ways to uh, to go out and raise capital yeah and for so many years it, you would see warnings from the stock commentators the usual crowd saying, you know, if you're thinking of investing in marijuana stocks, beware, <laughs> because they are so volatile. I mean, they go up to 300% in a day and then drop again to 300%. So it, it seems like there's only one way that uh, that a lot of these companies can go as more and more states expand into legalization, and eventually, hopefully, federal legalization. And that is up. But you know, not all of them are going to succeed. And what do you think is the measure of success for the U.S. companies right now who decide to go public? Well, I, I think what we're seeing among these American, or, you know, what we're seeing with companies who've got um, own operations in the United States is they are racing to get um, operations in a variety of different states, the, right? Because you are, uh, many states have limited limits on the number of licenses you can have. For example, in Massachusetts, you are limited to having three um, dispensary licenses. And so that what that means is that if you're going to, once you get to your third license in Massachusetts, if you want to grow as a company, you have to go to another state. And so because of some of these license restrictions in, in states and in, in some of the larger states, you're seeing our, our, our American companies or companies who are who have operations in the United States racing to go to other states as as other states um, is, is their is their cannabis operations as they set up their cannabis operations. So, right, we're seeing a, a, a 
incredible interest in New Jersey. We saw incredible interest in the medical um, in, in the medical uh, system that they that, that they're setting up in New Jersey. There's a lot of interest in what will come in in recreational in New Jersey. Um, as as the system gets set up in Michigan, which um, has recently um, gone to adult use, you'll see you'll see our companies trying to look there. And so the growth in the United States is really staying on top of where the regular regulatory environment is getting better and, and setting up our operations in those states. Right. So that just begs the question, too, how do they deal with interstate commerce? Let's say if a supplier or a producer has product and they're getting licenses in multiple states, isn't it sort of cost inefficient to have, you know, if you're doing three different states, you have three different grow operations in three different states, wouldn't it be more cost efficient for them to have one big grow operation in one state and then transport their product into other states? I mean, how are how are companies dealing with that right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you are absolutely right that in a in a perfect world we would have um, cultivation. You would have these large cultivation centers, and I think most people predict those large cultivation centers would would end up in will end up in California or at least some warm weather environments, and 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 you know maybe one day actually internationally. But until we have legalization in the United States or at least a better better federal environment, um, the you know the there is no um, there's no shipment of product over state lines and no shipment of product over um, the U.S. border. And what what that means is that um, companies who have state licenses um, have to set up or have to buy their product from operations within that state. And so we are seeing in in every state right now, um, you know, a, a, uh, a the need for cultivation, and it and it it's kind of had some interesting effects on um, state economies. And and you know, I'll, I'll give a couple examples here again in Massachusetts. Um, what we we have a we have a we have a you know many abandoned old manufacturing facilities that that one day were were the the textile industry in Massachusetts and and large buildings and these are these large buildings are now being turned into grow centers and I think in a perfect world it would not be efficient to to grow cannabis in Massachusetts just because of our um, because of our cold weather and and but but because the the cannabis that we're going to consume in Massachusetts needs to be grown in Massachusetts people adapt and and some of that adapting is is had wonderful is going to have wonderful effects on the on the economy of Massachusetts you know some of our 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 towns that are really struggling that were old textile like Holyoke and Fitchburg these these towns that are far from Boston but had a manufacturing base are now having are now going to have um Better economies and a little bit of a resurgence because their their old buildings are being used for as grow facilities. It's it's a, it's a very interesting effect and and not necessarily one that's efficient, but one that can be helpful to the economy. That's one thing that I was thinking about the other day that you know makes it an advantage that this has been federally illegal as the industry emerges into you know sort of an economic boomtown. Uh, when you're looking at these localized economies, I mean, how else are they going to benefit from huge operations, let's say, in agriculture that are centered in, in one state and shipped across state lines? Nobody gets to participate in that economy except to buy the products that they eat. And so with cannabis, federal prohibition has actually created a lot of opportunity for each state to participate in this economic upside, which is incredible, actually. It's nice. Yeah. And it, 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 I mean, one, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the good things about it is it that is allowed for um, a, some diversity in our industry and has allowed for um, some to right some of the wrongs of the of the war on drugs that that, that we've all that we all seen in the in the 90s and and you know in uh, in certain states in, um, in New Jersey and others the, the the specific state are adopting systems to benefit the, those people who were who were victims of the war on drugs who were incarcerated for for marijuana crimes and 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 because 
so many of these facilities are being set up near the inner cities or in the inner cities, it's allowed for a, a diversity of people to to participate. And 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 again, it's it it. Um, Going back to, to sort of your point is it may not be the most efficient efficient way to do it, but it has led to some some benefits in the economy. Allowed some people who who normally might not benefit from uh, from legalization of uh, marijuana to to benefit, and 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 that's good, and that's good, and that's a, a really positive thing about this industry. It's interesting that you should mention that. Last week we interviewed Benita Money, who is setting up or who has set up an organization called Indica and D I. ICA, which is working to help people who've been convicted and incarcerated for marijuana crimes to sort of re-enter, obtain licenses to get some legitimacy in the cannabis industry. And in California, they have a, a social equity program that's from specific zip codes that were most greatly impacted by this, you know, search and seizure, arrest, prosecution and incarceration of mainly minorities. And so what they're doing to try to make that right, since so many people were incarcerated for so many years, and their lives were destroyed, not only that, but their families' lives were destroyed. And it actually contributed to this cycle of almost like abusive prosecution that targeted these minority and low-income communities. And so what this is doing is really helping to lift these communities up out of that cycle and giving new opportunity to people who have records for uh, marijuana crimes. And so I'm just curious, are they doing the same thing in Massachusetts, where it's sort of a social equity program where they're allowed to get into the business? Because there are other states that say, if you have any criminal record, any felony on your on your record, you're not allowed to participate in this industry. Yes, they are. And, and in fact, um, California became a, a little bit of a model for Massachusetts. And, and what happened in Massachusetts is that our, our state legislature specifically um, wrote into the law that there should be preferences for people um, uh, who've, who've been victims of the, of the war on drugs and that there should be preferences for people who, of, um, who bring diversity. And so um, that has led our, our Cannabis Control Commission to, to put together a, um, a package of, of um, ways to address this. First is that there's been a preference um, in the licensing. And, and what I mean a preference is that they've, the Cannabis Control Commission specifically will address applications from economic empowerment applicants first in the process. And so we, we've seen a... Um, you know, influx of applications here in Massachusetts for dispensaries, for cultivation sites. And um, those who get preference are those who, who who specifically meet the qualifications of the commission, including victims of the war on drugs or, or diverse applicants. And and so that's made for a much more diverse um, pool of, of um, applicants. What we have seen, though, there's some challenges to this. Um, you know, not surprisingly that um, uh, what we're seeing is that some of these economic empowerment applicants are having difficulty um, uh, getting investment. And one of those difficulties is because they just don't have the access to contacts in other states and other people who have done this before. And, and they also lack experience. And so our commission here has tried to rectify that by giving economic empowerment applicants specific training on how to get investments, on how to run a cannabis operation. Um, and, and so we're, we're kind of in the middle of a grand experiment here. Um, it'll be interesting, I think, in a couple of years to see if um, the applicants, you know, the, those who, who hold licenses in, in a couple of years are, are more diverse or we have more um, victims of war drugs who are owning their own sites. I, it, it is an experiment and, and, and we'll see where it goes. Um, and, and I think some of the basis for what is going on in Massachusetts, we have seen as um, some of the same language in Massachusetts has end up, ended up in the New Jersey um, record, in the proposed New Jersey recreational law. And so I will not be surprised to see that 
um, New Jersey um, sort of follows the lead that Massachusetts gave, and 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 let we'll also see if New Jersey sort of learns some of the lessons and the and in, in the failures and the successes from uh, from Massachusetts. It's you know, I, and I think you know is um, the the best the best ideas are ones that other states have done, and you know, at least here in Massachusetts, we've copied some other states in what we do, and I'm starting to hear that other states are starting to copy Massachusetts. That's really good because there are so many problems that are born from not being specific enough in the laws that were passed. <laughs> that we're, we're noticing that here. I don't know if you've been following any of the court cases that are going on in other states, but here in Arizona, we've had some doozies that make your head spin when you think about the injustice behind it. But we, we recently had the Arizona Appellate Court denied the petition to reverse a conviction of a card-carrying uh, medical marijuana patient who had hashish that he purchased in a dispensary and was arrested because the definition of marijuana did not align with the criminal code here in Arizona, which stated that cannabis is the resin of the marijuana plant. So it made this unique distinction between the word cannabis and the word marijuana. And in our law here, there was no provision in the law that expanded the definition of marijuana to include extracts and resins and, you know, cannabinoids pulled out during a processing. There was no specific language in there. And so the appellate court jurists said there was one dissenting, but um, the other two said, well, you know, the state is actually correct in this, that cannabis the hashish that he had that he purchased in a dispensary was an illegal substance under the law. And so the guy had to go back to prison and his name was Rodney Jones. And he was an African American who happened to be stopped in Yavapai County, which is where there are prosecutors who've been trying to get the medical law overturned. So this was a huge victory for them at the expense of a patient who thought he was abiding by the law. And we're, we're starting to see more and more people become arrested here in the state because they're carrying extracts that they purchased in a dispensary. It really is just such a conundrum. And it looks like the Supreme Court may just go ahead and overturn this so that Rodney Jones can be set free. But he was a victim of semantics. And there's no other way to state it. And I know in California, they didn't identify CBD. So they sent out a notice a couple months ago saying that you cannot add CBD to food substances because CBD has its own numerical code in Schedule 1. And CBD naturally occurring in marijuana flower, of course, is not illegal in California, only CBD by itself, which means typically CBD extracted from hemp. And it was only because they just didn't mention it. So It'll be interesting to see as these new states implementing new laws this year with measures that were just recently voted upon, if they've learned the mistakes of all of these states to actually get very specific with their language so that there are no incidental omissions <laughs> that will cause other people to go to jail. What you're hitting on is the fact that in some of these states, we we have all written either ballot questions or our legislature legislatures have adopted significant changes to the law and have adopted significant programs to set up our medical and adult use programs and when you make significant change of this sort of course they're going to be mistakes and some issues that come up. And, uh, you know, I, I followed some what's going on in Arizona in the case that you've talked about. And I think what we need to see in those cases is at least some sort of leniency from our from our judges who recognize that this was not meant to be an area where there should be ambiguity. We also, what we need to see is we need to see our legislatures act quickly in those circumstances. Um, and, and unfortunately, of course, what happens is politics gets in the way. And we've in, in Massachusetts been trying to do a technical fix to our to our cannabis bill because there have been some, some issues that have come up. But of course, politics gets in the way of that. But, but I, I, I think the point is the one that you hit on, which is 
you know, for those who are considering bringing legislative measures or writing laws or ballot questions, please learn the lessons of other states. Please do not write a, um, a, a new ballot question or a new law without getting significant input from, um, from the legal community in your, in your communities and your states. This, these things are very complicated. And if they're not done right, um, uh, they, they they can have some severe consequences, and that's what we, that's what we we have seen in in Arizona, and and so um, you're you're absolutely right. We need we need some leniency when, once these things are passed, but it's great to get them right at the first time, and the way you get them right at the first is by learning some of the lessons from other states. Yeah, and also for the jurists to be educated on these semantics as well, because. I can't help but feel that if the Arizona appellate court jurists were educated about the fact that cannabis and marijuana are one and the same, <laughs> I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with these new states, and I'll be following that very closely, obviously. What I also think, too, is that we are we are doing a better job of expanding our our state bars in in these states that are legalized. So I, I haven't gone back to what happened in Arizona, but I know in in certain circumstances in certain states we have gotten attorneys involved in cases who do not have cannabis experience. And I'm not criticizing attorneys who are taking on these matters because they lack um, cannabis experience. What I'm suggesting, however, is that as our state bars, as our attorneys in, in each state get better educated about cannabis and, and all of the different nuances about cannabis and the distinction between um, CBD and, and cannabis and, and understand more about it, it, it will lead to better decisions. It will lead to better advocacy on behalf of our, of our cannabis clients. Um, and, and just lead to a better legal system. And so I, I can't talk specifically about the lawyering and with regards to the circumstances in Arizona, but I'll tell you that there are so many nuances among these products. And those who are who are in this industry, I think, are starting to realize that and, and are beginning better educated on it. And that's leading to um, more discussion among attorneys who work in this industry about how we can educate ourselves better. It's leading to you know more education of our legislators and, and all of that is good. And this is what happens when you invent a new industry. It takes time for people to understand the nuances. It takes time to for people to learn the difference between hemp, CBD, and, and, and cannabis. And we're slowly getting there, but I, I appreciate the facts, and we're not getting there quick enough on, on the legal side. And, and it's programs like yours that are, are furthering the education. We need to keep doing it. Well, thank you for saying that. And it kind of harkens back to the same problem in the medical community as well, because we're now finding that cannabinoid deficiency is such a huge part of disease process and the immune system failures and neurological failures that we have. And yet doctors are not educated on the endocannabinoid system. So it's kind of the same thing. Any profession that has hands-on this industry really does have such a steep learning curve to go through in order to, you know, really get up to speed with what's possible, what's legal, what's, what's medically salient for patients, you know, what's necessary for human health, and what's necessary to correct the wrongs in our criminal justice system. I mean, it is a huge learning curve. And, you know, and I, I appreciate that you say that. And I think that education really is the key to this. And I think as people realize that the sky is not falling because of legalization measures that have passed in different states, there's going to come a time where our lawmakers are going to have to stop protecting the lobbyists who are fighting tooth and nail to keep cannabis from becoming legal. You know, and there are so many industries that threaten trying to block this. I mean, pharmaceuticals, the most obvious, but we also have like the, the biofuel industry with corn and soy and and the opiate producers, uh, they're very threatened by this. Private prisons are threatened by it. Alcohol is threatened by it. But it's amazing how the politics, the lobbyists, and the lack of education are all synergistically working together to you know, slow the progress. But I think this is a runaway train. And there's just no stopping it at this point because the financial upside the upside to the communities, the medical upside, 
the environmental upside, all of those things, they're, they're more powerful than the lobbies against cannabis regulations. So, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. Let me give you an example of um, an area where, where I think we're improving. And um, so here in Massachusetts, we've had medical uh, marijuana since a ballot question in 2012. Um, uh, and we've got we've had lawyers who have been participating in this industry before that. And, and obviously, once the system got set up, so 2012, 2013, well, we finally, um, just this 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 past month, had our first um, meeting of a of the cannabis of the Boston Bar Association's cannabis group. We finally put together and had a cannabis symposium for an afternoon of of attorneys here in Massachusetts, Boston based, who are who are interested in cannabis and who are working in the cannabis se- sector. And it it took six years for for that to happen. And there are a couple of reasons it took six years for it to happen, right? One is, is when, when it started out, there was, there was still a, a, a feeling among the lawyers, many lawyers in the Bar Association, that that was not necessarily a, a legitimate way to practice law. Um, and, and second, there, you know, there were just not, not enough folks to, to provide an education. But slowly over time, that changed. And, and so it took us six years to, to do that. But we had a, we had a wonderful day where we, um, we talked about real estate. We talked about intellectual property. We talked about a variety of other um, topics in, in the cannabis world. And I know there are a number of cannabis bar associations out there, and, and I know we're, we're just getting better at that. And so, you know, that's a little example of, of how we can be better at sharing ideas. You brought up doctors. You know, it, it, we're, we're 